Welcome to the Southside Sermons Podcast. I am Christopher Campbell, pastor of Southside Baptist Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. This message you're about to hear is from God's Word and is offered to you with this prayer that God would give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey His Word. May your faith be strengthened in Jesus, and may you grow in your knowledge of Him. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. If you receive it as such, would you say amen? Amen. After hearing a text like this read, we may be filled with dread Do the problems among the church in Corinth ever end? First, division. Now, sexual immorality and all kinds of evil. And we are only in chapter five. And what's next? This letter of 1 Corinthians may sound harsh to us as hearers, But remember, it did not start this way at all. Whatever harshness proceeds out of the pen of the apostle, proceeds out of a place of thanksgiving to God always for who they are and who God has made them to be in Christ Jesus. They are sanctified in Jesus Christ. They are called saints in the name of the Lord. They have grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They were enriched in him, not lacking any gift, and will be sustained by him to the end, guiltless. And all of this is founded in the faithfulness of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Any holy harshness or divine discipline that is directed at them is not meant to punish them, but to purify them, to remove away everything among them and in them that is not Christ and him crucified. 
so that they might be the people God has made them to be, his. And God is holy. God is to be worshiped as holy. And the church is to be holy as God is holy. Alan Ross says this, this means that any worldly defilement of body, spirit, mind, even if through simple contact with the world system is incompatible with the holiness of God and interferes with the purity of worship. Being a sanctified people means that we must separate from the world and all of its defilement. This separateness is not accomplished by going outside of the world, the apostle writes, by remote isolation or seclusion or a perpetual quarantine. We do not separate ourselves from the world, but we get rid of what is worldly among us. We do not go out of the world, but we purge whatever is worldly from among us. And that requires discipline. The church in Corinth did not have a care or concern for church discipline. Church discipline is a process among the body of saints for purging what is worldly, what is evil, from among them. It's a collective process performed not by individuals, but by the body as a whole. And so it doesn't make any difference at all if a pastor or a few lay leaders care about church discipline, if we all do not care about church discipline, then we show no concern for who we are and who God has made us to be together in Christ. Good discipline, godly discipline, proceeds out of love. It never seeks the destruction of the soul, but only the salvation of it. And when we are sanctified in Christ Jesus, we are also submitted to God and his loving discipline so that our souls might be saved in the day of the Lord. In all that has been written thus far in 1 Corinthians, the apostle does not disown the church in Corinth because God our Father does not disown us. Christ does not divorce his bride, us, the church. Instead, God disciplines us because he loves us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse six says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The apostle is writing with a tender tone at the end of chapter four as a spiritual father to his beloved children. He asks this question in chapter four, verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit 
of gentleness. And then without any break, as it seems, without any opportunity for the church to respond, the apostle proceeds to address another report from among them. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. God's word says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. The topic of discipline moves from division, chapters one through four, now to sexual immorality. Traven Vang says this, when a church looks and functions as described in the first four chapters, it invariably leads to the behavior of the next two chapters, which we're about to encounter. This is why it is important to practice church discipline because sin grows. What starts small, if left unaddressed, becomes much worse. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin grows. The division, quarreling, jealousy, and strife was something previously unknown to the apostle until it was reported to him by Chloe's people. But this sexual immorality, it wasn't flying under the radar unnoticed. It wasn't whispered in the hidden chambers. What the apostle wrote when he said, it is actually reported, may be translated literally in this way. It is everywhere noised abroad. Everyone is talking about this, and everyone knows where this sexual immorality is found. Among you, in you, church, in Corinth, Is there sexual immorality with God? Then why is it tolerated in his church? In the specific example given in chapter five, a man has his father's wife, a clear violation of God's design and God's law. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 20. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say, Amen. This was not to be done by God's people, and the apostle says that even the pagans, the Gentiles, the outsiders do not even do this. So how did the church in Corinth respond? Look with me at verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
The word arrogant means that the church was inflated with pride. This wasn't ignorance. If it was, it was willful ignorance. They were building themselves up with the wrong reputation. The church of Jesus Christ is often likened to a hospital for sinners, and it is. If you are a sinner, come. We have a cure. The word of the cross is the medicine you need, the life-saving medicine that you need. Jesus will save your soul and heal you. But you don't stay a sinner when Christ saves you. When Christ saves you, he transforms you, and you are a sinner no more. He makes you a new creation, the scripture tells us, and you are called by his name, called, as Corinthians says, saint. That means a holy one. And a process of sanctification begins. That means setting you apart. That begins in which the Spirit of God empowers you with everything you need for victory over the world, over the flesh, and over the devil. Some churches seem to miss this in their messaging today. I'm sure you've seen it if you paid any attention. They advertise something like this. We are a place for people who don't like church. We're not a church for perfect people. We're a church full of sinners, so you come too. Or we're a place for the second chance. And they seem to boast about how bad, how sinful, how terrible the people are or were that attend their church, thinking that somehow that shows how great God's grace is. If we boast about how bad we are, that must show how great God is. That's the thought. But that's the kind of arrogance the apostle is calling out, the kind of arrogance that leads to permissible sin. Of course, God's grace is amazing and greater than all our sin. But we don't boast in what we were. We boast in the Lord who has made us what we are. Does this make sense? We are not like the world. We are not going to look like the world. We are not going to behave like the world. We are not going to talk like the world. When you gather with the saints, you are part of something that is holy and belongs to the holy God. The Corinthians responded to the sin among them with arrogance, but the apostle tells them they should instead have mourned. Verse two again, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. That last clause gives the full reason for this mourning and why it should have taken place. Do not mourn merely because of the sin itself. Mourn because of what that sin causes. Sin causes separation. Sin separates. 
if we were simply to mourn only for sin, we would never stop mourning because sin is everywhere in the world. But the church mourns for sin when sin lives within her because the church understands what sin does. Sin separates us from a brother or sister in the fellowship that we have been called into in Christ. Warren Wearsby says, church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it is a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. So the apostle then explains how the church is to practice discipline and rid themselves of this horrendous evil from their midst. Look at verse three. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the process. And really, it's an interpretation of what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, and here it is, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. That's what Jesus said. There comes a point where individual pleas have been exhausted. And for the sake of the body, the body must act together against that sin. Now, here in Corinth, this was a very public sin. Everyone knew about it. And so it is, it necessitates a public response from the church. The church is to, the apostle says, assemble together, not in their own name, but in the name of the Lord Jesus, as the apostle instructs them with his judgment, and this discipline is to be done with the power of the Lord Jesus. Remember, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in what? Power, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. We cannot simply talk about these things without doing anything to back up the talk. We cannot simply talk about being members of Christ's church, but never willing to hold members accountable for their behavior when it's contrary to God's will. So this is the church doing the Lord's work with the Lord's power. And they are to make this insider an outsider for a time by delivering him to Satan, by removing from him 
the protection of the church, to safeguard the worship of the church and the sanctity of the church. Did you know that you are protected by being a member inside Christ's church? Satan can't get a hold of you. You're in Christ. But to set outside that protection exposes you to however God may use the enemy. Think about how God allowed Satan to test Job. As G. Campbell Morgan says, the flesh had become a master thing in this man's life, the flesh, the sexual immorality. So in putting this man outside the church, the intent was that this man's master, this man's flesh might be destroyed and his soul saved. As you read through the Old Testament, you will notice that two things always go together. Take note of this. Sexual immorality and idolatry always go together. And whatever you allow to become an idol in your life, to become a master over you, that's the very thing that you may be given over to so that it might destroy you with hopes of saving your soul. We see this at work here as well with this man. It is not just that this man is committing a fleshly sin, but that his soul is in peril too. He has made his flesh a god, idolatry, and he has corrupted the worship of the church. Look with me at verse six. The apostle says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Because the church is a fellowship The church shares a feast together, the communion feast that remembers the Passover feast. As God was delivering his people, Israel, from Egypt, they were to kill a Passover lamb and spread blood upon the doorposts of their house. Why? Because the destroyer was coming in that final plague to kill all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Who would be spared? Who would be saved? Only those in the house with blood on the door. Only those within. Those insiders. The outsiders would perish. There is a protection that the church enjoys being inside the communion with Christ. But it is not a communion for anyone living in sin and boasting about it. In God's word, leaven represents something that destroys, something that 
separates. Israel, in their haste in that Passover meal, was to eat unleavened bread to represent the absence of sin that destroys, to represent what was sincere, unadulterated, and true. And just a little bit of leaven will leaven the whole lump. Just a little bit of sin will cause the whole body to sin. Just one man, one woman, one family, just one will bring destruction upon a whole church fellowship. Verse seven says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is the gospel message. Church, we are unleavened. We are without sin. We have been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. The destroyer has passed over us. How? Because our Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. And Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, is that lamb. He gave himself for his church. And his blood covers the doorposts of this building and of this body. His church. And inside his blood, we are safe. We are purified. We are unstained. Inside his blood, we are what we really are, unleavened. And because of his precious blood given for us, we cleanse out the old leaven. We remove the sin. We deliver the sinner over. We celebrate the festival without malice and evil. And obviously this is talking about the Lord's Supper to which later the apostle will instruct them that they must examine themselves very carefully and not partake in any unworthy manner. Look at verse nine. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. The church was so arrogant that they thought the sexually immoral people were outside the church because sin blinds like that. So the apostle clarifies to his beloved children, verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Church, let us not use that name, brother or sister, so casually. If you are living in sexual immorality or greed or idolatry, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, you are not my brother. You are not my sister. And I want no part of fellowship with you. Rather, I want God to save you. And if we allow 
such so-called brothers and sisters to be called brothers and sisters in the fellowship, to be called members of Christ's church, to be called members of Southside Baptist Church when they are not in sincere and true fellowship, then we are complicit in their deception. It is better that they be put out. It is better that our numbers dwindle. It is better that we not eat with them. It is better that they be outsiders so that they might do what they will never do in here, that they might repent and turn and be saved and not led to believe that all is good and well. I would say that the majority of those hearing me are parents or grandparents, some even great-grandparents in here. You know how difficult it is to raise children and to discipline them. The parents says to the child, it hurts me more than it hurts you on discipline. Why do we go to all the heartache and trouble to discipline our children? Because we love them. Because they bear our name. They represent us. Your child represents you. And you recognize that there is something valuable in that child that is worth preserving and persevering through discipline. You want that child to be who that child was made to be. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 says this, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. You know as well as I do that our culture frowns upon such discipline. I can't help but wonder if that is in part because the church has failed altogether to practice it. How many of you have ever seen a child acting foolishly and thought to yourself, I know what that child needs. He needs the loving rod of discipline. We all think that. So then hear me, church. Why is it that we, the same group of us who are quick and willing to discipline the unruly kids of others, have little to no concern for exercising that same discipline among us? Christ's body, Christ's church, the family of God. It is a work that is given for us to do. Look at verse 12. The apostle says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God has given us a spirit of discernment and judgment to know right from wrong. We're not concerned with pronouncing judgment on sinners in the world, they're outsiders. They are following the one to whom they belong. Only God can change them. Only God. 
But to us, it is given to act on all who are inside the fellowship. Verse 13 concludes, God judges those outside. And then here's the command, the sum. Purge the evil person from among you. Remove the evil person from among you. This is a command, one in which we are to be obedient. To be obedient to God's word means to practice church discipline. But as it is with all of God's commands, this one too is for our good. When we obey God in his work, we are trusting God in his work of saving sinners and showing forth his goodness that draws men and women to repentance. It's an evangelistic thing to practice church discipline. And repentance is always the goal. Better that the flesh be destroyed, that the idol be destroyed and the soul saved than the flesh saved and the soul damned. Christ came that we might be saved. Christ gave up his own flesh to destruction for us on the cross because of our sin. Christ was buried and raised again in power so that we might not entertain sin and worldliness any longer as his church empowered by his spirit. G. Campbell Morgan again says this, the history of the church shows that the church pure is the church powerful. And the church patronized and tolerant towards evil is the church puerile, which means childish, and paralyzed. There is a great necessity for the exercise of church discipline. I love that phrase, I wanna say it again. The history of the church shows that the church pure is the church powerful. Where is the power in the church? Why can't we see it? Where is the growth as we see in the New Testament within us and growing in number? Are we pure? Are we representative of God as his witnesses who do God's will as revealed in God's word? Any holy harshness and divine discipline that is directed at the church through God's word is not meant to punish us, but to purify us to remove away everything among us that is not Christ and him crucified so that we might be the people God has made us to be, his. Thank you again for listening to this message. I pray that God would accomplish his purpose in you through the preaching, hearing, receiving, and believing of his word. If you wish to share any comments or questions about the message you have heard, please call Southside at 256-353-8814 or visit us on the web at southsidebaptist.net. Also, make sure to subscribe or follow this podcast to receive a new message each week.